done. All right. Okay, this is the uh, John 13 through 17 lessons of the upper room class. Today is February 12th, and uh, this is week, week six, I think. Um, and we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, so a little smaller section of Scripture. And <clears throat> this, is the, this section of John 15 is uh, kind of the theme running through this chapter is the foundation of Christian living. And just as a reminder, the overall theme of John 13 through 17 is, is kind of living life with an invisible Savior. Living life with a Savior you cannot see, you cannot touch, you cannot talk to literally as you would one another person in the room and have him talk back to you. Obviously, we can talk to Christ through prayer, but um, the, our experience in serving Jesus is very different than the disciples, the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples who are with him physically on earth. And uh, those disciples are about to have their whole world, their whole paradigm uprooted and uh, uh, turned around as Jesus is telling them, I'm not going to be with you much longer. And so John 13 through 17 is a zoom in on the final hours of Jesus's life on earth. And during that time, he gives uh, a lot of uh, comfort and instruction to the disciples and how they are to live when they cannot see him any longer. So here's our recap of what we've been talking about so far. As Jesus is walking at night through the streets of Jerusalem, down the vineyard-laced slope of the Temple Mount, toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he continues to love his disciples to the end by giving them instruction on how to live life with a soon-to-be invisible Savior. In John 15, Jesus instructs them on how their ministry in the world is characterized by three relationships. The first one with Jesus, the second one which we're talking about today with other believers, and then next week it'll be our relationship with the world. And so that's kind of just a little bit of foreshadowing of what we're going to be talking about. But look at our introduction on page one. Friendship is something that's talked about in this passage. So friendship is something we all long for. Nobody wants to be lonely. With the advent of social media, people seem to have more friends than ever. Thousands of friends and followers. And it seems that we have a greater ability to communicate and cultivate those friendships. Yet, despite the technological advances, studies have shown that nearly 90% of people cannot name a friend for each of their fingers. So there's still, there's this weird discrepancy that though we have technology that enables us to communicate with people no matter where they are and to connect us, people do not have deep, meaningful relationships or don't have enough people that they would call and consider their friend. So why do you guys think people are struggling to form friendships in this day and age? Busyness. Could be. Sometimes it's that. To have a good friend, you have to be vulnerable. And that's kind of scary for some people. Okay. To have a good friend, you have to be vulnerable. And that can be scary to some people. Just a reminder, I repeat your answers so that people on the recording can hear them. That's, uh, and then sometimes the people in the other, uh, on the other side of the room to help them. To have a good friend, 
Finding a good friend, yeah. Sometimes finding a good friend who will be good to you is hard to, yeah. Yeah, yeah good. shifted how we do a lot of stuff, just daily interactions, whether it's shopping, used to be in the store, now it's online, whether it's working, used to be in the office, now it's from home, doing, you know, talking to friends, used to be in person, now a lot of it's online, or messenger, or social media, or whatever, so we've really kind of created a distance. Yeah. It can make it harder to have intimate friendships. Yeah. So what Gabe, you're essentially saying is the technology that promised connection has actually promoted distance because uh, instead of, as he said, a couple examples, instead of meeting each other at the grocery store and talking, we just shop online, pull up our cars, open the trunk, don't say a word to anybody, and they throw it in, we go home, right? Uh, um, so we, uh, instead of um, talking face-to-face -face with people about things that are deep or being vulnerable, Don, like you mentioned, we, uh, we scorn and, and uh, chastise each other online and get into f political fights and religious theological battles on Facebook messengers and, and posting threads. And you know, I don't know how to have civil discourse anymore because we hide behind our computer screens. But yeah, so this, the technology that promised uh, getting deeper and having greater friendships has actually sometimes, and that's not to say that it's not redeemable and doesn't have good value, but at, at large it has become a hindrance. Any other thoughts why people are struggling to form friendships today? Yeah. I think sometimes people uh, form friendships based on what they think that person wants in a friend, and because it's not genuine, it might not last, or it's, uh, it might not develop into something that could be genuine. Yeah, okay, so you brought up how we, we, we initially start to try and form a friendship with somebody because of something we think that we maybe have a shared common interest. Uh, or something and if it doesn't pan out or maybe that we don't actually agree or like each other or like the same things as we thought we did. Um, yeah, and I think another thing is just that I think our culture at large is pretty narcissistic, pretty selfish, and uh, that can be a big hindrance to friendship if, if you're always looking at other people as what what's in it for me, what can you do for me, what can you provide for me, and just a very selfish uh, mindset of thinking in our culture instead of a selfless and when you have a culture just full of people who are selfish, then nobody wants to be your friend. You know, you don't even you have a hard time being friends with somebody when you only think about you. What comes to your mind when you think about the word friend? When you think about a friendship, whether it's a childhood friendship you have or had, or a long-term friendship you have, or friends you have now. Well, what what, what comes to mind? Loyalty. Yeah. Honesty. Honesty, yeah. Honesty, loyalty. Somebody mentioned the word busy, and I, uh, my best friends are people that I, I know love me, even though I'm busy and they're busy and I haven't talked to them in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so even though we're busy, they still have these friendships where uh, when, we're, when we have a moment, we could call them at a drop of a hat and they would still love us and talk with us. You know, have that, there's that, uh, that bond is still there despite the business. Yeah, Forrest, you had something? Yes, I think 
to find a true friend that you can trust. Trust means a tremendous amount. You can tell them your problems. It's very, very important to have a good, or several friends. You, you can not necessarily limit to one. You can have several friends that you can trust. Yeah. So trust is a huge aspect and component of friendship. You know, if, probably wouldn't call somebody your friend if you don't trust them. You can't talk to them about anything that's important to you. Uh, you're worried that they're going to spill the beans or that they're going to mock or ridicule you or whatever. You have to have trust to have a friendship. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yeah. Friends, uh, friends doesn't mean you're always perfect in the way you treat each other. Uh, you should be able to extend forgiveness to each other. And a prayer partner, okay, yeah. So a friend then to you is somebody who's involved intimately in a spiritual way, and that's you know spiritual friend, you know friendship on for spiritual reasons is a is a form of intimacy, right? Where you're you're sharing things that are burdens on your heart and praying with somebody, and uh, you know I kind of mentioned earlier this morning when I took a verse out of context, but Galatians chapter six and bearing burdens with one another would be a mark of a friend. In John chapter 15, 12 through 16, Jesus continues to use the extended metaphor of the vine and the branches. So we talked a lot about that at length last weekend, the vine and the branches and the meaning of that metaphor. Um, having dealt with uh, branches that bear fruit and don't bear fruit, sucker branches in the previous verses, he focuses on what the fruit of true branches looks like with the foundation of Christian living laid and abiding in Christ, that is the foundation for living with an invisible Savior, that we abide in Him, Jesus now lays out specific commands for the disciples, those He calls friend, that both glorifies God and demonstrates that we are truly saved. You can turn the page. Page 2, let's look at our text. And then we'll kind of ask, walk through some questions and study the text together. John 15, 12 through 16 says this. Jesus talking, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So in verse 12, as we look through this, we kind of walk through this verse by verse. It says, in order to abide in Christ, which is all, you know, chapter 15, 1 through 11 was all about this command to abide in Him. In order to abide in Christ, what commandment must the disciples obey? Yeah, to love one another as I have loved you. So what's the extent 
To what extent must the disciples love each other? What's the quality of that love? Yeah, willingness to die for each other. You know, specifically, Jesus says, as I have loved you. And uh, we've kind of talked about this before because Jesus is recycling a command that he's given already in chapters 13 and, and has talked about at length. And he qualifies that love because remember in 13, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And we already talked about that. That's not a new commandment. That's all over the Old Testament. But he says that you love one another as I have loved you. And we talked about what that meant, because that can't mean that Jesus is saying, well, I want you to all go and die on a cross for each other and try to atone for each other's sins. Uh, no, we can't do that. But you're right that the sacrificial idea uh, is what Jesus is speaking to, that we our love for one another should be characterized as sacrificial, even, I would say, to the point of death, not to atone for their sins, but that we would be willing to lay our lives down for each other. But I believe that if you're not willing to lay down your preferences and your energy and your comfort uh, for other people, for their benefit, you're probably not going to die for them. Right? We often have a very uh, romanticized view of love where it's like, oh, you know, we think about like in marriage, you know, the guy, the husband tells the wife, I'll do anything for you. I'll, I'll, I'll take a bullet for you, honey. But he won't take out the trash for her. Or he won't do the dishes. You know, it's just like, well, uh, maybe you'll take a bullet if you accidentally get hit. And then, you know, but like, if you're not sacrificing yourself for your your wife in other ways, why would you sacrifice in that way? <clears throat> Question number five: Why do you suppose that Jesus makes sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters the true test of love towards Him? Yeah. I think the more we love others, the more we love others, the less we have time and desire usually to love ourselves. That can definitely be true. Right? Uh, you've probably heard the, the phrase, idle hands are the devil's playground. So it's like if we're sitting around doing nothing, we're probably going to be struggling with sin more as opposed to being busy doing what God's will is for us. What else? Think back, if you can, you can look back. It's not a cheat to look at the Bible. But look, uh, look back at uh, John chapter 13, the end of 13. <clears throat> verse 35. Based on what verse 35 says, why... Why does Jesus, why is it our love is tested, our love for Jesus is tested by how we love each other? Yeah, so Jesus said earlier when he gave that new commandment that this obedience to this command demonstrates to the world that we're his disciples. That's interesting, not just to one another, but to the world, the outside world looking in. And throughout these, these chapters as well, uh, we know in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will what? 
keep my commandments. Okay, so um, I, oh, I talk to my son this way sometimes when he's struggling with obedience towards me or his mother and say, do you love your mom? Do you love your dad? Yes. Okay, when you disobey, you show us that you do not love us, but that you are hating us. You are hating the command. The same is true for Christians. If we profess with our mouths, Jesus, I love you, but we have nothing to do with what he says. We don't want to do it. Never want to obey him. Then there's a, there's a lie going on. There's something not lining up. Now, obviously, there's times where any time uh, as Christians we struggle and disobey, and it's true. In those moments, we we choose not to love Jesus, but that's certainly not the character of our lives overall. First John chapter three verse sixteen says this: By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So why do you suppose Jesus makes sacrificial love for the brethren, the true test of love for Him? Well, this is the thing, right? This is how you serve an invisible Savior. If Jesus were physically here right now, there's all sorts of things you could do. You could dote on Him. You could pour out nice, expensive perfume on His feet, right? You could bring Him food. You could wash His feet. You could help Him. You could do all sorts of things, right? If He was physically here. But He's not. But His bride is. Jesus' bride is here. When you love His bride, His church, when you love His body, the church, you are loving Jesus. Whatever you do to the, the, the least of these, you do to me. So we're in a theme that's running throughout this morning. If you're in first service, we've been talking about the nursery, when you, or in the children's ministry. When you serve in the children's ministry, you are serving Jesus. When you serve at the welcome desk, when you serve in the coffee ministry, wherever you serve in the church, you are serving Jesus, an invisible Savior. When you love other people in the church sacrificially with a right heart motive, you are loving and worshiping Jesus. We always have to be careful as Christians to not separate in our minds uh, worship from acts of service. They are one and the same. Oftentimes, if you do the word association game and you say worship, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Most people would say music. And it's like, eh, I hate that. I, I, music is an important piece of the pie of worship, but it's a small piece. Of, it's a small piece of the pie. It's important, but it's small. Everything we do in life is supposed to be worship. How do you know that, Tyson? Well, Romans chapter twelve says, "What well, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice." That is the language of worship in the Old Testament. A living sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. Our whole lives, everything we say, we do, everything we think, not just what we do on Sundays, everything is meant to be worship. And one of the ways that we display our love to the Lord is how we love one another. So, big test there. Here's question number six, though. What is the greatest test of faith? Sacrificial love for your enemies or sacrificial love for your friends? Why? It's yeah. a lot easier to sacrifice love for your friends. A lot harder Okay. It's interesting, though. Just an interesting point of thought as you think about this. Jesus doesn't say, the world will know you are my disciples when you love your enemies. 
Now, we are commanded in Scripture to love our enemies. That is a, that is a, a truth in another verse. But it's interesting to note, observationally, that Jesus says, you want to know, you want the world to know that you are really a follower of Christ? You want the world to know that you have been transformed by the power of the gospel? He didn't say love your enemies. He said love one another. So what's the greater test of faith? loving one another and if it was if it was easy to love one another jesus wouldn't give a command to do it <laughs> right that's this kind of thing anytime you come across a command in the bible it's there because we inherently have a disposition to not do it but that's a, then it begs the question why why is uh sacrificial love for one another more difficult than your enemies uh, loving your enemies is hard. But why is that a greater apologetic for the gospel? Because you know your friends better because of our sin nature see their their imperfections more so than they hear yeah so you said yeah you were saying that uh, we are with each other more often we see each other's sin nature we know about it and uh, we sin against each other more often and then we do our enemies and yet we still coexist together i think i think that's a big part of it any other thoughts it could also be the idea that you say well they should know better. They know they're Christians. Like they know Christ. How you know? So you're less apt to be gracious and forgiving and whatever else because you think so. You can like judge them harder. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's two two edges to what you just said there. And with when it's our enemies, right? We think about un, and I mean, when I talk about enemies, I mean unbelievers, those who hate the gospel and hate Christians. Uh, they don't know any better. You shouldn't expect people to act differently if they haven't been changed and transformed by the gospel. I mean, we should expect people to behave in, to a degree somewhat, right? But when somebody slanders you or makes fun of you for the gospel or hates you because you stand for certain biblical truths that are in the scriptures, like uh, that there are only two genders or that uh, marriage should only be between a man and a woman, you know, when you stand for certain biblical truths that Christ taught and uphold as well, uh, and people hate you for that, you should not be surprised. You shouldn't expect somebody to be like, oh, you know what? You're so right. I'm a... I'm a, I'm a doofus. I should have seen that. Now they're going to revile you, and, and you say in your heart, it hurts when that happens, but you say, man, apart from the grace of God go I. I would be blind to the truth as well. I was blind to the truth at, once, at one point in my life. But, but Jesus intervened and saved me. I can't expect someone to respond that way when I didn't either, apart from being saved. So there, there is a big difference. But when you're in the community of believers, 
who are expected to act a certain way because they have been transformed, and then they don't, when they're expected to love, when they're expected to always be kind, when they're always expected to be patient, and they're not, it can be a little harder sometimes to extend forgiveness and love. We see each other's dirty laundry all the time. We, we are involved in bearing each other's burdens, you know, and so it can be harder to forgive those. You know, somebody, when we talked about friendship just a few minutes ago, talked about the need for trust. We talked about the need for vulnerability. And when sometimes you are vulnerable, sometimes when you trust and then somebody hurts you in the process and burns some of that trust, and somebody you thought was a friend doesn't act very friendly toward you, and yet you still have to see them Sunday after Sunday, that's much harder to do. And it requires the costly act of forgiveness, both asking for it and extending it. But man, when that happens in a community of believers, when supernaturally people are supernaturally loving one another because of the love that Christ has filled them with and they are forgiving, absorbing the cost of sin done against them and extending love in its place and continuing to coexist for each other with sacrificial love as a mighty, much, much more mighty and powerful apologetic to the power of the gospel than simply loving your enemies. I'm not saying loving your enemies is unimportant. I'm just simply pointing out that Jesus doesn't say the world will know you by how you love your enemies, by how you love one another. There's a quote here from J.C. Ryle. He says, The frequent repetition of this command teaches the vast importance of Christian charity and the great rarity of it. How anyone can pretend to Christian hope who is ignorant of Christian love, it is hard to understand. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper and sharp, cross, snappish, and ill-natured in the use of his tongue, exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principles of Christ's gospel. The crossness, spitefulness, jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness of many high professors of, quote, sound doctrine, are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there can be little grace. Question number seven. What type of relationship does Jesus offer if his disciples obey his commandments? You can look at verse 15 for that. Or verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. Yeah, friendship. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you. Right? We are, and we've talked about this at length in the other previous weeks. This is not a statement uh, of um, workspace salvation. 
If you were to just take that verse by itself, rip it out of the context, and you just throw that verse out at somebody, it makes it sound like it. Oh, you only get to be Jesus' friend if you do what He says. If you don't do what He says, you're not His friend. Yes, but those who are His friends are those who have already been cleaned by Him, saved by Him, transformed by Him, filled with His love, and those people will manifest that salvation through their works. And so those who are saved, those who are his friends, will do the works and commands he's called. This is kind of, if we go back to chapter 14, he says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. The love comes first. The, out of the love we have for Christ, which you do not have apart from salvation, out of that love comes obedience. Same thing here. Verse 15 no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Uh, verse 8, as we talk about friendship, uh, question 8, I'm sorry, question 8, as we talk about friendship with Christ, uh, does this seem like a modern day friendship? Why or why not? This is a pretty significant thing to be called. So what does it mean? Is this just like what we have friends today? It doesn't seem to be. I mean, a lot of friendships today can call people friends, but it, even you would admit it's pretty surface level. Yeah. So modern day friendships can, not all, but some of them can be surface level. And certainly a, a friendship with Christ is going to be much more substantive than a surface level relationship. Yeah, you certainly can have both God and friends. You can be friends with God and have friends on this earth. true. There's no other kind of friendship in the world where this friend is, happens to be your savior. I think it talks about references like you being in union with God and there's a oneness because God is, through His Spirit is revealing things to you. Yeah, absolutely. So Don, I think, was, is keying in on there. Remember our context of John 15? We're still within the metaphor of the vine and the branches don't think any other friendship you have on earth can be compared to saying that, uh, uh, you know, like I have a friend named Costin, and uh, back he's back, I don't know, she's not in Oklahoma anymore. He's in the military. He just moved again. Uh, but uh, I, I don't say Costin uh, is the vine and I'm a branch of Costin. <laughs> this is weird. This, I don't say that, or vice versa. I don't say that about any of my friends, you know. I don't have that kind of relationship. So Don was saying we have this special, unique union with Christ that is unlike any other friendship in existence. Most of us wouldn't uh, form a friendship with someone who said, you can be my friend if you do what I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, so there's a, there's a special kind of uniqueness to the relationship. Yeah, if somebody comes and says to me on earth, as Denny said, hey, Tyson, I'll be your friend if you do what I tell you. 
I'd be like, I'm getting away from you right now. <laughs> I'm not going to hang out with you. Very scared right now. Question number nine. If you look at verses 13 through 14, there are three characteristics to those Jesus calls his friends. What are those characteristics? Kind of mentioned one already. Love, sacrifice, and serving. So I think the, the love one is, I, I, would, I would bundle all those into one. All right, that's verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What did he command? To love. To love the brethren. Yeah. Verse 15. According to verse 15, what's another characteristic? So somebody who gets the title of a friend of Jesus is someone who obeys his commands. And then what else? What marks a friend? Okay, yep. Yeah, I'd include that in the first characteristic, you know, that loves. According to verse 15, Jesus says, says something there in that verse that distinguishes someone who's a friend. So let me, here's a uh, Bible study principle. Okay, when you're reading... Um, and this is true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whenever you see the word for, F-O-R, it is, uh, you could replace that word with because. It, it, what it means is anything that comes after for is explaining what, just, what was just said. So Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants for. Why? Why? Because the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for. Why? All that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So what makes a, what, what distinguishes a friend of Jesus from somebody else? Because he's let you know what Father wants and what he wants. Because you have been given special revelation into the mind of Christ and of God. That's what makes you one of the hallmarks, one of the characteristics of a friend of Jesus. You obey his commands. You know what he is thinking. And the third one, in verse 16. Is there fruit? Yeah, we could include that. I would include that in the first one, the, the uh, you do what he says. Yeah. You did not choose me. I chose you. So who are the friends of Jesus? Those whom he has chosen, those who do his commands, and those who know his will and his heart because he has revealed it to them. So does the title of friend erase the relationship of slave? Because Jesus says, I don't call you servants anymore. Call you a slave is the word doulos in Greek. Oftentimes, like in the ESV and maybe some of the other translations, often uh, translates the word doulos as bond servant or servant. Uh, but the word is slave. And uh, I think most times English translations are just afraid to use that word uh, because of the, the uh, uh, awful history in our country of slavery's abuse. 
But whenever you hear the word slave, you really have to purge your mind of what you think about in the antebellum South, because that is not how it was thought of in um, ancient Near East times in, in, in Israel and the Greek culture. There were certainly abuses of slavery. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, ignorant to that. But at large, slavery was not the dirty word that it is today. But uh, so he says, I don't call you a slave. Uh, no longer do I call you servants, a slaves, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. So does Jesus erase there the relationship of a slave and master between us? I know, that's, that's why I ask. Paul says, all, and many of the other gospel writers, uh, you go to James chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Second Peter 1, Jude 1, Revelation 1, you have all these different writers who open up their letters saying, a slave of Christ. So this is just as you study this, you come across, you're like, huh, I don't call you slaves anymore, but then all the rest of these uh, Bible writers say, I'm a slave of Christ. <laughs> what do I do with this? I just think it, that uh, being called a slave of Christ alone is not a full picture of our relationship with Christ. You can never erase the distinction between the Creator and the created. Right? That's one of the things we talked about already that, that makes our friendship unique. Jesus can say, I'll be your, you can be my friend if you do what I say. That's the Lord. He's always Lord. And Lord always insinuates, that, that term means master. It also uh, has theological weight of Yahweh. And every time you see Jesus referred to as Lord, it always carries this, I'm the boss, I'm the master, I'm the creator, and therefore you are in a position of submission to me. But by, be calling, by being called a friend, it intimates that we are so much more than just a slave. Because slaves in the ancient Near East did not get the privilege of having a close relationship with their masters. They didn't get to know. Their master didn't come in and say, hey, I just want to share with you what's on my heart and my mind. I want you to know what I'm doing with my life, and I want you to be a part of that. But Jesus does that with us. He says, yeah, you are submissive to me. You are the created, but I want to share with you all that the Father has. I want you to know what's going on in our hearts and in my mind. I want to reveal that to you. Yeah, you're still going to serve me, but I love you. And you're going to be a part of my plans, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So friend doesn't erase the distinction. It just gives it so much more sweeter and intimate meaning. <clears throat> Look at the page three. I'm going to do it on time. Okay. A quote from MacArthur's test, uh, commentary, he says, While it is true that the followers of Jesus are also designated as slaves, that is not sufficient to fully convey our relationship to the Lord. Incredibly, we are also called his friends, a more exalted title even than disciple. And then D.A. Carson in his commentary said, An absolute potentate demands obedience in all his subjects. His slaves, however, are simply told what to do while his friends are informed of his thinking, enjoy his confidence, and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of their master's heart. 
so also here, Jesus' absolute right to command is in no way diminished, but he takes pains to inform his friends of his motives, plans, and purposes. And then uh, uh, a quote from uh, the commentary. Oh, who is this? Uh, just blanked on the name of the, this commentary, commentator's name. And I don't have it in my footnote for some reason. <laughs> Uh, it'll come to me later. But the, this commentator said, this phrase, uh, the phrase uh, friend, is lit up by a custom practiced at the courts, both of the Roman emperors and of kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. Such a sweet privilege to be called a friend of Christ. And it really, I think, uh, highlights and influences our motivation and our obedience. Right? When you think about obedience, uh, we don't do it out of a, just a drudgery duty. Oh, Jesus is the boss, and I better do what he says or I'm fired. No, because there's a sweetness and intimacy in our relationship with him as friend where he shares his heart with us, and we have that same heart yearning that he has, and we do it because we love him and we love others. So that impacts our, his command to love one another, right? We love one another because we're friends of Christ, and he has shared with us why it's so important that we love one another, and that's what motivates us to do it. Our love for Him and our understanding of Christ's reasonings. Question 11. After calling them His friends and helping them understand the immense privilege that accompanies that title, what temptation might have occurred in the disciples' hearts? I don't call you servants, slaves anymore. You are my friends. What temptation do you think might have conjured up. Remember what the disciples were doing as they went up to the upper room, not washing Jesus' feet. Arguing. They were arguing. What, what were they arguing about? Well, who's going to be first? Who's going to be greater? Who's going to get to have a nice, sweet job and a, some authority in Jesus' kingdom? So, Some pride, right? So Jesus is sitting there telling them, you guys are my friends. I don't just throw that term out, right? I don't call everybody my friend. And it's like, whew, I'm Jesus' friend. I'm pretty awesome. I mean, Jesus, he didn't just choose anybody, right? He just, he must have saw something good in me, worth being, worth having me around. But what impact would Jesus' words from verse 16 have on the temptation of pride when he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Well, I think if any pride would have rose up with them for Jesus to, you know, then to say something like that, the person would be, you know, uh, his man from that pride from becoming even greater. Yeah. Absolutely. Dismantle that pride. Humble them, right? You didn't choose me. I chose you. 
I chose you. And it's not because you were inherently good, not because you were inherently worthy. The disciples knew that. Remember, there's a lot of mixture of emotions still going on right now. Uh, mixtures of shame because they didn't wash the Jesus' feet. They were arguing about who would be greater in the kingdom. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And so they're confused because they're like, who on earth is going to do that? And Judas left and they most of them still don't know that Judas is the betrayer. Shock when that when they're going to be shocked when Judas shows up in the garden. What on earth? Um, and then uh, Peter is humbled when he's like, hey, Peter, you are going to disown me. You're going to deny me. And so it's just like, boom, boom, all these hits keep humming. And then Jesus is like, hey, I'm leaving too. You guys are going to be on your own. Oh, what? Well, not fully on your own. I'm going to give you a helper, but you're not going to see me. But what are we going to do? And so it's just a lot going on. And they're confused. They're struggling. They're not the ones who are loving Jesus right now. Jesus is loving them. But he still says, I chose you. I appointed you. The choosing here, this is a quote from uh, J.C. Ryle. The choosing here uh, mentioned is evidently twofold. It includes not only the election to the apostolic office, which was peculiar to the eleven, but the election to eternal life which is the privilege of all believers. Election to eternal life is a truth of Scripture that we must receive humbly and believe implicitly. Why the Lord Jesus calls some and does not call others, quickens whom He will and leaves others alone in their sins, these are deep things which we cannot explain. But let it suffice us to know that it is a fact. God must begin the work of grace in a man's heart, or else a man will never be saved. Christ must first choose us and call us by His Spirit, or else we shall never choose Christ. Beyond doubt, if not saved, we shall have none to blame but ourselves. But if saved, we shall certainly trace up the beginning of our salvation to the choosing grace of Christ. It's interesting, in verse 16 of John chapter 15, it says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So it's interesting there that he brings up prayer again. He's brought up prayer a couple times in uh, these chapters about praying in his name and him giving whatever they ask for. If you do it in his name, we talked about that, I think about two weeks ago, that when you pray something in Jesus's name, it's not just a little uh, slogan you add at the end of your prayers to make sure it's like a stamp that makes sure your prayer gets to heaven. It's not a magical incantation to pray in Jesus's name. It's, so it's not wrong if you say it during your prayers. Just I want you to understand that it means that you are saying, I am praying in accordance with Jesus' will. I understand what Jesus wants me to be asking for. I understand what his heart is, um, and I'm praying in a submission to Jesus' will. That's what it means. And so Jesus is saying, if you pray in my name, whatever, that means you praying with the things that I want you to pray for, I guarantee you that I will answer it. You think about the Lord's Prayer that He taught to His disciples. When you pray that prayer, Jesus will guarantee you answer, to answer that. That when you say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy, revered be your name, Jesus is going to answer that in your life and in others' lives around you as you share the gospel. Uh, holy be your name, hallowed be your name. Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. 
Let your kingdom come on this earth uh, in, in a spiritual sense as, pe- as people are saved and converted to the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, but also physically. Jesus, return and bring your kingdom to this earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord Jesus, whatever I ask, I want your will to be done. Not mine, but yours. I'm asking for this, but if that's not your will, I'm okay with that. I want your will to be done. As it is done in heaven, make it be done on earth. Okay? Please give me the, the food I need just for today. I don't, I, I don't want to be poor, so I'm tempted to steal, and I don't want to be rich, so I'm tempted to forget you. Please just give me the things I need to do that I need for today to live. Help me to be dependent upon you. For, for, you know, um, so give us our daily debt. Forgive us of our trespasses. Please forgive me for my sins against you today. I'll specifically name them. These are the things, right? As, we, as you walk through a prayer like that, that is what it looks like to pray in Jesus' name. So when he says, when Jesus brings up this prayer in connection to uh, loving others, bearing fruit, what is the connection to prayer? What is the connection to prayer in our fruitfulness? Let me say that another way. Can you be fruitful if you do not pray? I think without prayer, a lot of people forget God and just expect to just run the world and when prayer is the door that's going to keep you open and feeding your spirit and your other things, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. A life without prayer, you will definitely be prone to forget the Lord. Can you bear fruit apart from prayer? Helping you. Most of the time you're praying and then you're reading your Bible, and I said, Whoa, I didn't see that before. Mm-hmm. You know, and it gives you that idea of what you should be trying to do now. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesus works through us and our prayers to bear fruit. There's a strong connection here between our prayer and our fruitfulness. A life that is devoid of prayer is going to be a life devoid of fruitfulness. Now, remember, in our last week, we prayed that when we're struggling to, to bear fruit, a, a genuine Christian never ceases bearing fruit. But there's times where we struggle to be as fruitful as we can be, and God, the vine, Father, the, the Father, the vine dresser, graciously prunes so that we will produce more fruit. So you think about the times when God brings suffering into your life, hard things, what does it usually drive you to do? Pray. At least it should. Causes you to realize, oh yeah, I'm not self-sufficient. Oh yeah, I can't do this on my own. I need to go to the Lord. And in the midst of difficulties, trials, and sufferings, that prayer helps us draw near to the Lord and not forget Him, but it helps us continue to produce fruit where we were probably lacking in how fruitful we could be. It helps us grow in increasing our yield of fruit production. 
Prayer is integral to being fruitful in your life. Let's look at the last page, page four. According to the following verses, why does obedience... So let me preface this question real quick. We're still in the context of the vine, um, and Jesus said in verse 11 that our joy will be made full, and it'll be His joy. His joy will be in us, and it will be made full when we abide in Him. And we've talked about how abiding in Him is, produces fruit, and that fruit looks like loving one another. And so when we see these commands, according to these following verses, why does obedience to God's command give us joy? Ephesians 6, 2-3, Honor your father and mother, this is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. How does that produce joy? How does obedience, according to that verse, produce joy? What's the reward for obedience there? Living long, and it may go well with you, and that you live long in the land. So there's two benefits there. You get to be in the circle of blessing as we talk to our kids at home about. When you disobey, when you don't obey God's commands, you're outside of the circle of blessing. Even an unbeliever can experience the circle of God's blessing. There's some just natural consequences that come with living wisely, right? An unbeliever can look at the book of Proverbs and apply a lot of that, of that instruction in their life and benefit from that. They can be in the circle of blessing even if they're not a believer. And same thing here. When children honor their father and mother, they, it goes well with them, and they usually live longer. It's not a guarantee. Just like the, none of the Proverbs are promises, it's not a guarantee, but in general, when you uh, listen to mom and dad's instructions to not stick a fork in the electrical outlet, you're going to live longer. <laughs> Same thing with Christians. It's like when Jesus says, love one another, obey my commands. Part of the things we have to uh, preach to our hearts when we're tempted not to do it is, this is the circle of blessing Christ wants me to be in. It will go well with me. And in general, I will live longer when I am obedient to Christ, when I'm abiding in Him. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is the blessing that produces joy when we obey in that command? Hmm? What? What's that? Eternal life. In, ver- in Matthew 5, 8, for they shall see God. I guess if you interpret the verses as saying that, I, I, I wouldn't interpret it quite that way. Uh, you could say that, yes, it's eternal life, that you'll see God in heaven. Um, but I would interpret that as just uh, intimacy and nearness to God. If you're in heaven, you have nearness to Him. So I guess that works too. That the joy, the source of our joy is God, and our nearness to Him is the fullness of that joy. The further we're away from God, the diminished, and our joy is diminished. The closer we are to Him, then our joy is more full. And our joy will never be as uh, perfectly full until, like Steve said, we're in heaven with no more sin and with God. But blessed are the pure in heart. That's You, you want to see God? Be pure in heart. Strive for holiness. 
Acts 20, 35, and all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What is the promise of that verse when, when you obey? Not quite that they get to see God, not in this verse. It says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What does it mean to be blessed? It is, it is more blessed if you give than you receive, to give to people than to receive from people. If you're blessed in this context, what does that mean? Happy. Happy. Yeah. The truth in this passage is that when you obey and you sacrificially give to others, you will be more happy than if you're a receiver in general. doesn't mean you're not happy when you get a gift from somebody. But in general, the life principle is when you sacrifice for others, when you give to others, you will be a much happier person. You will be more joy-filled than if you're just always selfish and about gimme, gimme, gimme. Right? That is the benefit and blessings that we must remind ourselves of obedience and sacrifice for others. As we, um, as we are friends of Christ, as we seek to obey Him and live out His commands out of love for Him, and we are tempted to disobey, it is these promises and these reminders that help us to see that there's actually joy and blessing in obeying, even if, at the, even if the, our obedience at times requires crucial crucifying the flesh and sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of somebody else, there is greater joy in that than in being selfish and doing what we want. That's, that is the great truth that we must preach. You all are preachers. you got to preach to yourself. Preach the truths and promises of Christ to your heart on a daily basis. But that's our conclusion for today. We are out of time. Next week, uh, Scott O'Neill will be teaching on the next section on our relationship to the world. I will be in Kansas, probably celebrating with all the Kansans how the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl tonight. And uh, we're going to go back and see our family. So uh, I won't be here next Sunday, but uh, Scott O'Neill is going to do a great job, and I'd be really excited about that. So you guys have a good rest of your day.